0: series and worship series for um, the time in between Christmas and the start of Lent is going to be on infamous women of the Bible. And the genesis for this series came from discussions that were happening in our Monday morning Bible study, which I don't even lead. I just have the opportunity every now and then to stick in my head and, and talk with them. And there was a discussion going on one Sunday about learning more about women who we only seem to have a negative connotation of in the scriptures. And when we started thinking about something a little lighter as we go before Lent and something that would be informative and perhaps really interesting, uh, that conversation brought forth a bunch of different women in the scriptures, many of whom are believed to be one way, but in the Bible they're actually another. And Mary Magdalene would probably be the queen of that. Mary Magdalene is the only woman next to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is mentioned the most in the New Testament. In fact, she appears in all four Gospel accounts on the Easter resurrection. Sometimes she is by herself, sometimes she is with other women, but she is always there. And for someone to be mentioned so often and for someone to be such a vital part of the Easter message, how is it that we have maligned her? For infamy is usually being well-known or even notorious for the wrong reasons, for things that are not considered to be morally upright, or maybe deeds and the way that you live your life, that this would be someone that we do not wish to emulate. So how did Mary Magdalene, who became one of the very first people to discover the truth of the Easter Resurrection, how did she become a paragon for sin and immorality? How did that happen? Well, like all things, all people are capable of good and bad. And most of us spend our life trying to do more of the good and less of the bad. But we are all imperfect. We all fall short of the glory of God and Mary Magdalene would probably agree with that. But what does the Bible actually say about Mary Magdalene? Well, her name, Magdalene, is actually referring to Magdalena, where she was from. Just as we have Mary and Martha of Bethany, a small city outside of the holy city of Jerusalem where they resided with their brother Lazarus, we have people who are sometimes identified by where they are from. I'm sure now you would like to go out and say, you know, I am Sarah from Crozet. You can identify yourself. There's a biblical precedent that way. Others are identified by the patriarch of the family with which they reside. Might be their father, might be an uncle or a brother, whoever it was that is now in charge of all the family, then that person would often be part of that. So for instance, a lot of the early references in Hebrew and Aramaic to Jesus were Yeshua ben Joseph, for he was Ben, the son of Joseph. And so sometimes it's your lineage that we acknowledge ourselves by in scripture, But Mary Magdalene, it's not that her last name was Magdalene, that's not her name, just like the last name of Jesus isn't Christ, but we are a modern people and sometimes it's hard to remember that. But she was from a small place outside of Capernaum in northern Galilee. So just as Nazareth is up there, so was Magdalena. And it was not a place that was renowned for high culture, a lot of rich and wealthy people. It was a place where there was probably a lot of fishing that was happening. And yet Mary, according to some of the sources that we have, was probably older, maybe just a generation older than Jesus, because she is able to move about and follow the disciples without being married and without having to appease an older male relative. And so she has this liberty if you will, in order to wander around and follow Jesus. And there were a number of women who were part of the disciples, not the apostles, not the 12, but the disciples who were continuing to follow Jesus and support Jesus and the apostles and how they cared for them. Sometimes it was things that were pretty important like making sure that they had food, cooking, and helping to ensure that their clothes were relatively clean by biblical standards, helping to ensure that they had shelter if they needed it or, or any other means that which they can help support the ministry of Jesus and the apostles and Mary was one of those so how did she become this red-haired incredibly seductive and often maligned person who was supposed to have had all these sexual sins how did that happen well when I told you that sometimes good people do bad things also sometimes good people do things that they didn't mean to do as bad but then turned out to have bad ramifications that happened on September 14th 1591 when there was a short homily, which is a a shorter sermon, a short homily preached in Rome by Pope Gregory the Great. And in his sermon, he ends up saying something that will set a new understanding for Mary Magdalene. He was trying to do the right thing. One of the things that you have to do when you are preaching a homily or a sermon is that you have to figure out how to take the text and make it relevant and then convey divine wisdom to people. I've been known to do this upon occasion. It's not as easy as one might think. And I have a a special place in my heart of forgiveness for Gregory for doing what he does. But he's also trying to have kind of scripture study in the midst of it because this is a time in the world where people don't have access to Bibles most of them can't read so the only way you're going to learn scripture at this point in christianity is if you hear it in a sermon or a homily and so he's trying to do the right thing he's trying to do a good thing i I know there are other people that will ascribe to him less than wonderful attempts at trying to do the right thing but we're going to grant him some grace because that's what we do we're methodists and he does this he takes mary magdalene and he combines her with two other women over the course of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He has Mary Magdalene and he will conflate her with the unnamed woman, the unnamed sinner in Luke, the the adulteress, and then he will also conflate her with Mary of Bethany. Now, as I pointed out, Mary is part of a sibling trio. You have Martha and Mary and Martha is really kind of type A and OCD and wants to make sure everything is done correctly. And then you have Mary who was like, I just want to sit and listen to Jesus. And that upset Martha because Martha's like, come on, Mary, we got things to do. A lot of people here are going to have to eat. Come on, come help me. And then Jesus kinda has to settle that dispute a little bit. But even more so, they have a brother named Lazarus. And it seems that on his regular journey around the southern kingdom of Judah, what happens is that Jesus ends up staying repeatedly with these siblings. He stays with them, they offer their, their home, their homestead, whatever it is that they have, not just to Jesus, because remember, when you open your home to Jesus, you automatically get at least 12 guys. And so they would have all of them come and stay and take care of them. No wonder Mary's like, I'm just going to go listen to Jesus. It's a lot of mouths to feed. But, but Lazarus will become sick, and he will die, and then Jesus is able to resurrect him. So when Gregory combines these three women, you get acts of penitence, you get the idea that there was sexual sin in the unnamed woman and then you get the idea that mary magdalene was somebody that was following jesus around probably out of gratitude now the one thing the scriptures do say about her is that jesus had healed her from seven unclean spirits or seven demons whatever your translation says but she was inhabited by seven spirits gregory will also go on to make another little fallacy you know Popes have the ability to speak and be infallible on church doctrine. And that is one of the gifts of their office as the vicar of Christ. But most people don't go and read papal bulls, but they do listen when popes preach. And so it also means that what the pope says then kind of becomes doctrine and dogma for the cardinals and the bishops and the priests. And when Gregory started to combine all of these women into one, he also decided that Mary had red hair. I'm not sure why he decided that, maybe that's a bigger statement about Gregory, but that became one of the new standards that Mary now has red hair. Let me assure you that if someone has red hair in the Bible, the Bible pauses and goes, this person had red hair because it was different. It was very distinctive and it's believed that King David had red hair because that's worth noting. In a world where most people were brown with dark hair, red hair stood out. And so we don't have any of that for Mary. The Bible is really not concerned with what Mary looked like at all. So it's kind of interesting that we are concerned with how she looks. Instead, the Bible is focused on what she does. What is she doing? In fact, she gets this privileged encounter with Jesus, what we sing about, and in the garden, because she was going to honor him. Whether you favor the the endings of the gospel accounts where she is by herself or with other women, Mary was going to anoint the body of Jesus. It was the one last thing that she could do. She had cared for him over the course of his earthly ministry, and now in one final way, after witnessing the horrific death upon the cross, she wanted to ensure that he would be honored in death. And so she went with some costly spices, for they were not cheap, and she went to go and deal with something that most of us would never wanna deal with, the dead body of our loved one. And so she went there, and to her shock and awe, amazement, he's not there. And she was very much consumed with the practical side of things. As the gospel account of Mark recounts for us, they were trying to figure out, well, who's going to roll away the stone, right? Practical things. Who's going to make sure that we can get in there? We got the spices, but we can't get in if that stone is still in front. But then they get there. And in some cases, they're greeted by one or two angels. In some cases, they're greeted immediately by Jesus. But no matter which account you get, Mary is there. And she's there because she was going to do the right thing by Jesus, which says a lot to those of us who are wondering when we can have our Jesus moment. You do what Jesus asks, and you're more likely to have your Jesus moment. And so she gets there, and sure enough, in the gospel account of Mark, which is the oldest recorded gospel, it was the one that was composed in writing first. They were telling these stories orally before. But Mark is the first one to be written down, and then Matthew and Luke and later John will follow. But here, I have read you and stopped at the original ending of Mark. Can you imagine that in the first book of the New Testament to ever be written down, it ended with, so they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, the end. Well, first of all, we know they said something because we're sitting here. We understand that Easter happened because they didn't keep quiet. They told, and Mary Magdalene especially was part of that, hence, the icon and the depiction of her telling. She clearly told. Now, how many people went with her and who all told? That's debatable by gospel account. But she clearly told because she's in all four narratives. And then she goes and she tells them, And shock of shocks, sometimes they don't believe her. Woman, you are clearly upset. We get it, we're all hiding out in this room here because that was very traumatic, but you're a little misled. You obviously didn't see what you saw. And Mary's like, look, it doesn't take a lot to know if a tomb is empty. It's empty. He's not there. And so she was having to tell this message, and the gospel accounts go on to try to give us a little more. So Mark later had an additional ending that was added to it that went this way. And all that had been um, commanded of them, they briefly told to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent and threw them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, that had to be a later addition because nowhere in Mark does the author use words like that. The imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation salvation just rolls off the tongue doesn't it it's not something that mark would have used mark instead chose a very jewish ending to his gospel because at the end of the torah the first five books of the of the old testament the most sacred part for our jewish siblings in faith it ends without the story being fulfilled When you get to the end of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy ends with the people on the wrong side of the Jordan River and not in the Promised Land. All of this buildup, five books, a lot of genealogy. If you ever made it through the Torah, you know there's a lot of buildup for that moment that they step into the Promised Land and then for hundreds of years, they didn't. It just ended. But then people didn't like that. We liked resolved endings. So that's the same thing that happens in Mark. You start to get a little bit more. Oh, and she did. And then we kind of hand off quickly to Peter. And Peter's going to run it in for a touchdown. But even that wasn't very satisfying. So then there was a longer ending that was added to Mark, and it starts like this. Now, after he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So again, even when we're trying to flesh out the story, they don't believe her. They don't believe her which is kind of sad, because why would she tell a lie? Maybe they're trying to say, you know, we don't think you're telling a lie, but you're overcome with grief and you're not thinking clearly. Maybe it's just too incredible to believe. Even the angel has to tell them not to be alarmed and to look and see that the tomb is empty. But Mary won't stop. In fact, she becomes such a central figure in early Christianity that there's even a non-canonical gospel of Mary Magdalene attributed to her. There are also small sects that kind of creep up within early Christianity that are very devoted to living life the way Mary did. Helping as the community together, preaching the Easter news, being Easter people. And as one of my liturgical professors once told me, every Sunday is a little Easter. It's an opportunity to remember that Christ is resurrected and that we are living in a post-resurrection world. And Mary gives us that gift. If she had truly stayed silent, we would not be here. And if we were here, we'd be a very mournful people. If we didn't listen to her, if the original apostles had not heard her eventually, then Christianity would not be what it is. And Easter would be very depressing. But over the course of time, people wanted to believe the worst about Mary. They wanted to believe that she was depraved, that she had sexual sin. Sometimes they excused it because of the possession of demons or the unclean spirits, but people wanted to believe that. And you have to stop as a Christian and ask yourself, why do we want to believe the worst? Why would we be compelled to believe the worst about other people? Perhaps that's a greater commentary on our own sinful inclination than it is others. But people love to hear that. In fact, I had talked to some people who were not Methodists, but who had clearly had a slight affinity to Mary Magdalene. And I said, what is it that you like about her so much? And one of them said, I like the fact that she's a prostitute. And I went, really? That's a new one. And their their reasoning as they started to unpack that was that if she could be a prostitute, which is sometimes considered to be such a grave sin, that... and and then Jesus could forgive her and she could be there on the Easter resurrection, that it meant that a sinner like me would be okay because I'm not as bad as her, which is always an intriguing theology, isn't it? I just need somebody to be that much worse than me, and I will know that I am okay. But notice we don't ascribe to her murder. We don't ascribe to her that. We don't ascribe to her being one of those who betrays Jesus because we can't. Because the gospels are clear, no matter how human beings would add and continue to build upon an honest misperception, Mary Magdalene is the first to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. And that's important because her willingness to be there and experience it and then go and tell puts us here today. We couldn't be here without her. And if she had allowed her fears and her anxiety to keep her from doing what she needed to do, then the world would be a very sad, dark place. But it is because of her that it is not. And so now when I hear people say things about Mary Magdalene, and I must disclose to you that I had an entire semester on Mary Magdalene in seminary. Now, and so that's why this sermon will go for an extra 50 minutes. I'll try to rein it in. But I was fascinated to discover that of all the depictions that, that we explored, what really came down to the facts, if you wanna go right back to the Bible, and I think as Protestants, we are those people that are like, but what does the Bible say? We concluded what was in the Bible about Mary Magdalene at the end of the first week. I believe it was a Tuesday, Thursday class. So we had met on Tuesday and we had met on Thursday and by Thursday we had read everything the Bible had to say about Mary. And then I was going, what are we gonna do for the rest of the semester? We actually looked at how she had been maligned. We looked at the depictions and how people chose to show her. This is something that I bought at the end of that class because this is my favorite depiction of her. It's a depiction of her boldly telling them, Jesus is resurrected. You can almost see Peter like, no, 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 no. no. He is risen. And you know, because the gospel tells us so, that they're not gonna believe her. And some of them look depressed, some of them look like they're mourning, some of them look like, this is weird. But overall, Mary looks convinced. Amen. You will not make me doubt my savior. Not even you, Peter. Not even you. And so she gives us courage. But maybe the bigger story about Mary Magdalene is this, that in our spheres of influence, maybe in our homes, our relationships, our schools, our jobs, our community, even our world, there are people that are becoming the next Mary Magdalene. They're being misunderstood, they're being gossiped about, they're being embellished negatively. And we have our opportunity to decide what we're gonna do. Because every time I hear somebody say something about Mary Magdalene being a redheaded prostitute, there's a piece of me that wants to go, that's not true, do you have an hour? But more so, there's a piece of me that needs to say, when I hear of other people just like you and I that are being maligned, there needs to be a piece of me that would go, that's not my experience with him. I have found him to be trying hard to be a good disciple. I have discovered that when i needed a smile or a friendly ear he was there and it becomes our opportunity to tell the easter truth about another person that yes we were all dead to sin all of us had been sacrificed to our sinful inclinations but because of the sacrifice of the cross and because of easter morning we are easter people and if I can rise from my sin and you can rise from yours, then anyone can rise above their sin. And we are not a people who want to remember others by what is wrong, but the one who loved them through it. And it's our opportunity to offer our testimony, our experience, that they might not be maligned because it has taken almost 2,000 years for us to even start to turn the tide on Mary Magdalene. And even now, you will find plenty of depictions of her that are scathing, unflattering, and downright notorious. But one day, I believe that we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and I believe that she will be there, probably helping to show people where to go, And since she's been one of the longest running friends of Jesus, I'm sure she'll be close to him. And I have no doubt that if you get there and go, I thought you had red hair. She's going to look at you like you're crazy. And if you start saying other things that you heard, I don't want to know how Jesus is going to look at you. So don't. Don't repeat the bad things. Don't. Instead, let us live and speak with grace. Let us strive to be a people who say, Pope Gregory didn't mean to do it. We'll give him that, but we don't have to keep doing what he did. Instead, if we can find ways to help people to see her again in a new redemptive way, then just maybe we can help see each other in a new redemptive way as well. May it be so.